The following content is provided under a Creative Commons license. Your support will help MIT OpenCourseWare continue to offer high-quality educational resources for free. To make a donation or to view additional materials from hundreds of MIT courses, visit MIT OpenCourseWare at ocw.mit.edu. Uh, and he's done just terrific, terrific amount of work. He was also a uh, uh, DARPA program manager where he led the effort that we have studied in the class, the origami lens, uh, and, and many interesting projects. So here, today is going to talk about something that hopefully get us thinking. It's just at the right time, you know, it's the middle of the semester, and we have learned about a lot of ideas, uh, and uh, always enjoy talking to Ravi about, you know, where the field is going and how we can, how we can, uh, how we can kind of classify and understand the field itself of computational imaging and computational camera better. So, looking forward to it. Thank you. Thanks, Ramesh. It's a pleasure to come here and talk about uh, this thing that all of us love so much, cameras. Uh, and uh, this, uh, I worked a lot on this title, Cameras We Cannot Picture. <laughs> so, anyway, uh, I, I sent the slides to Ramesh ahead of time to make sure. I, I didn't know the, how to calibrate, where to go, uh, uh, but... He said that these slides are just perfect, so I trust his judgment. And I, I wanted not not just a the seminar or lecture, but a lot more interactive. So we can go through some of these very quickly. If I see from your faces that you know why is he telling us these things, but uh, be as, uh, as it may. So you know, history of camera. I think this was meant more for general audience. So I really focused a lot on history and how we are at a dramatic breakpoint. How that breakpoint is likely to impact uh, the future and things like that. So, in interesting historical milestones that you may or may not have covered in the class, but let's, let's go with that. But uh, th this is one thing, of course, none of you need to be told about uh, this. Uh, you all are carrying cameras. Uh, if you lived in London, you probably got photographed about 30 to 40 times during a typical work day as you stepped outside and... All these things. I, I just want to point out to, I don't know how many of you will sort of know what that image is. Uh, in order to know what that image is, you need to focus on the date. April 19th, 1995. That date has a special significance. That was the Oklahoma City bombing. And this is the truck. This is the rider truck that carried the bomb. And this is a picture from a security camera in the bank across the street. And this image has been used by many, many people to justify the work on high dynamic imaging. Everything inside is completely underexposed, everything outside is completely overexposed. As a result, this image by itself is pretty much useless. So, things come in two sizes, too big and too small, so similarly, this is the thing. This, this is a very interesting thing, and I, I also had another image of uh, somewhere in Iraq an IED going off and blowing up and some person holding the cell phone. And so I'm, I'm sure you're aware that over the last few years, any significant news event that happened in most places around the world, the first reports and the first images to came out, come out of that were cell phone cameras. So everybody is a reporter. So anyway, oh, well, one of the interesting things is uh, uh, this business about natural uh, observation. Gaps in the leaves projecting images of a partial solar eclipse. So, our ancestors must have observed these things. 
and said, okay, something is going on. So exactly what is going on and how can we replicate it? How can we uh, understand what's going on over there? This is another very beautiful photograph, I'm sure you have seen. Water drop acting as a lens forming the image. So just before there was any technology, before there was even a, a formal modern scientific process, uh, our ancestors, a couple of thousand years ago, since they didn't have the distractions of cable TV and cell phones and all that, they had a lot of time to really very carefully observe nature and uh, observe it over a long period of time from many different angles. So as an outcome of this was uh, the observation of pinhole images going back several thousand years. And I believe, I, at least I understand, that this was the first comprehensive study on optics, Al-Hazan. Uh, and this is the drawing of a pinhole camera. I think Ramesh, you have probably told them about the origin of the word camera. I haven't, so. but go ahead. Uh, you, you have? I have not. Oh, you have not. Yeah. Okay. Uh, camera, the literal meaning of the word is room. Because the first camera was indeed a room with a hole there and an image projected back there so you can trace it or something like that. Now, what is interesting is fast forward a thousand years and the world's largest pinhole camera was constructed in July 2006 where El Toro Marine Corps Air Station in Irvine was decommissioned. They wanted to preserve it. So they took an airplane hangar, closed the door and drilled a hole the size about a tennis ball or something and on the back side had a photographic film, eight stories tall and one third the length of a photography. <laughs> and uh, here it is. This is the image of the base upside down projected on the back wall. This is the, this is the photographic emulsion. And there were a lot, lot, lot of numbers as to how many gallons of developer solution they needed and basically throw it over a barrel and take a broom and spread it over and develop it. And I, I don't know where that image is now. I think it is in California, some art museum somewhere in Los Angeles. The point of that is over a thousand years and exactly the same operating principle is just the room except a much, much larger room and <laughs> taking a picture of a much, much larger area. <laughs> yes, indeed. Uh, the first optical instrument, <coughs> spectacles. And I think it, it really, the point, this is an interesting point. Spectacles or glasses, it really is a mechanical packaging solution. So, okay, so people realize that having these specifically shaped lenses improves your vision, but how do you do that? How do you make it convenient for you to wear? So people realize you have two ears and they're shaped in this manner and there is the bridge of the nose, so three-point support like this. Of course, uh, then there were all the elaborations of the Pinsnay's uh, glasses sitting or the monocle that you can screw into your eye. But, but, those were, but this is basically 1270, is the taking these optical phenomena and constructing a useful instrument that can be portable and that is used. Beyond that, the almost a 300-year gap between a single-lens optical instrument and a compound optical instrument, microscope and then telescope and everything. You might have known this, the 400th anniversary of the 
Galilean telescope revolution. And this is the diagram that you multiple lenses. So uh, going forward, the next history is photography. This is the first photograph ever by Deep Sea, 1827. And uh, it's basically the civil salt uh, sensitive media in various forms and it just evolved. One of the big uh, milestones was instead of glass, it was coated on paper and rolled and other things. So uh, this is another tidbit. Eastman Kodak. Uh, what does Kodak? What does Kodak mean? Anybody knows? <laughs> Eastman wanted a world that was a very crisp world and that was very positive, forward-leaning kind of a word. And so, apparently, Kodak is the sound that the shutter made when it pushed the button. <laughs> so it was not George Eastman and his colleague Kodak. Eastman Kodak was named after. But the slogan was, you push the button and we do the rest. And I think, one dollar brownie camera. If, if you put it in historical context, that was around the same time when Model T maybe a few years earlier, 10, 15 years earlier. But it's taking essentially really high technology and using some innovation to bring it down to masses so everybody can use it. So you, you can say that Model T and the Brownie camera was the first age of modern consumer technological culture. Uh, modern three-color color immersion, Kodachrome, stacked with doping and everything. And Polaroid instant camera, of course, in 1945, the definition of instant was a little bit different. <coughs> 30 seconds to two minutes was considered to be instant. And this, I, I was intrigued. This, of course, I found it on uh, Wikipedia. But Maxwell, whom we don't normally associate with doing experimental work, <laughs> but this was the color photograph. Do you three, know how it was captured? Uh, three separate exposures and then stacked them three separate films to, through okay. three separate filters. But how do you put them together? I guess <laughs> aligned it by hand okay. after developing it. Yeah. 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 And of course, you know, Abraham Lincoln was the first president to be photographed. So, and lots of beautiful photographs of uh, Civil War. The uh, photograph looks too crisp. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I don't know. I don't know if it was uh, subsequently touched up. They use the white field. <laughs> Actually, light field camera was invented back in 1908, so, yeah. <laughs> well, it looks like it's a long exposure, maybe, because the trees in the background are kind of... Yes. Blurry, yes. So they I think be just using a pinhole. All, all exposures were long, I'm sure. <laughs> okay, another historic milestone, that category for sensing and displaying, that fonts words were okay, and so mechanical scanning and all kinds of other things. CCD, uh, just, I, I gave this seminar about a um, uh, month and a half ago, Before and two weeks later the CCD Nobel Prize was announced, yeah. and I, I don't know, many of you are probably aware of the controversy whether these people really deserve the Nobel Prize or not, because they, they were working on uh, 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 shift register memory, and it was somebody else who said, hey, you know, slight sense of it. Anyway, but in most of these things, there is always a controversy about including MRI and all kinds of yeah. other things. But th this is kind of interesting. Yeah. Look at this. The first Fairchild camera. 
0.01 megapixels for 23 <laughs> seconds. And actually, if you look at the date, December 75, that, that's not that far yeah, back. Yeah. It's not that far back at all. Uh, then the subsequent revel, uh, digital camera uh, product, Sony Mavica, quarter megapixel, DCS 100, one megapixel, $20,000. <laughs> and 97 was the first transmission of picture from cell phone and cell phone camera. And this last one is very interesting. Very recently, Kodak stopped uh, production of Kodak Film. Mm-hmm. So if anybody has film cameras, well, you better start stocking up on old film. And 2006, uh, the 10 megapixel cell phone. I think with, with these 10 <coughs> megapixel cell phone cameras and all that, instead of uh, a cell phone with a camera, this is a camera with a cell phone. <laughs> so, bulk of it is probably with the optics and everything else. Optics mostly. That goes with it. Uh, you have heard of Moore's law. There is something called Hendy's law. Uh, empirical observation. How many pixels per dollar? And that's of course a log scale. And this is a linear scale in years. From uh, this DCS 460, 100 pixels per dollar to all the way here, and we will probably, I, I don't know, this is still an old curve. Uh, a megapixel camera, I think $5, mm-hmm. and I think the goal of many of these companies is megapixel camera for a buck. Everything, the lens, the focal plane array, the PC board, and everything, ready to plug in. With a wafer level camera. With right? a wafer level camera. It's already about a dollar, so yeah. less than a dollar. So, so, megapixel per dollar, so it's already out there somewhere. Mm-hmm. And this is sort of the picture gallery, Sony Mavica, DCS100, Samsung. This is uh, the OmniVision's uh, focal plane array, 2.1 by 2.3 millimeters. And this is a very interesting thing, Medigus uh, uh, for uh, endoscopy, video endoscopy. 1.8 millimeter diameter includes lens, the focal plane, the cable for trans- uh, sending power, sending the signals back. Uh, not great resolution, 326 by 382. But if uh, something needs to be stuck inside your body, smaller the better, and 1.8 millimeter <laughs> is definitely, definitely nice. Uh, this uh, chip is the one that's used in the uh, pill camera that you swallow to image your insides. Uh, this is, uh, I, I thought of something, you know, the uh, imaging, yeah, case study. Studying the inner space versus studying the outer space. So the camera pill and the Hubble Space Telescope. <laughs> so, uh, both are shaped like a pill. <laughs> both are shaped like a pill. Yes. Yes. I mean, uh, both are shaped like a pill in the sense, this, this was actually in the montage uh, uh, program that I started at DARPA. That, that was one of the motivations that over the past 30-40 years, the displays have uh, become thinner from bulky CRTs to thin flat panel displays. But the cameras, the aspect ratio of the cameras have not changed in the past however many thousand years. They are always tube-like. And so the goal was can you squash the cameras? Can you make a camera that is 5 millimeters thick, but the effective focal length is 50 millimeters. And the light gathering power 
also of a normal fit. And there are various tricks that you can play. The origami lens that you probably studied is one of the examples. The multi-aperture is another mm-hmm. example. But one of the things about, and I'm not sure in this presentation there are the technical details or specifications, but it's very interesting. If you look at the specifications of, say, Hubble, a pill camera, or take one of the modern lithography lenses. I don't think I have a picture of that. But the modern lithography lenses are a marvel of technology that these things... uh, Gary, you you, you remember how much... They they weigh several thousand pounds, right? Some obscenely heavy, uh, huge number of elements in this and cost multiple million dollars. And the reason is that it's absolutely diffraction-limited performance over a fairly wide field of view with zero distortion and all the aberrations, everything corrected. So, okay. Now, multi-scale images, broad, wide, and deep. Now, everybody, gigapixel imaging since the inauguration, it has really taken off. There are so many images like that having the wide panorama and finding the details like over here somewhere there is an eagle and so uh, can we get here from where we are right now and in a realistic size weight cost thing uh, can we get uh, a gigapixel camera Uh, can we get a 10 or 100 gigapixel camera very wide field of view very high resolution these are some of the challenges that will be addressed and not, not doing brute force. So it's, it's an interesting uh, prospect and it's an interesting direction. Now, But do you think these are the cameras that individuals will carry or this will be installed and then you have access to it uh, so that you can region of interest, you can, you can capture what you want? The, the, this is kind of an interesting thing. You, you can imagine... Uh, an individual uh, like uh, special operations soldiers mm-hmm. carrying binoculars like with the standard binocular form factor uh, that will be equivalent to a gigapixel. Mm-hmm. But not uh, there are no gigapixel displays. Human vision doesn't have the space bandwidth for gigapixel. So within that gigapixel you should be able to foveate and zoom in mm-hmm. and look at the details. There is an ongoing DARPA program. I don't know what phase it is at. Uh, some cognitive technology for warfighter, blah, blah. It was colloquially called Luke's binoculars. So in Star Wars, Luke has these binoculars and you're looking at it and it would put a cursor that alien there or this, that. <laughs> so that, that kind, it was primarily focused on the processing based on uh, neuromorphic, algorithms or something like that. So uh, the idea will be if you can design uh, the camera or an imaging sensor that can capture a gigapixel worth of information and if you have this back end, this neuromorphically induced processing that can cue the soldiers that look here, there and the soldier can then appropriately focus there. So that, that, that in terms of what kind of things that will be really useful for warfighter right now, that, that will be one of the things. And then, of course, you have platforms at various levels from micro UAVs with about 9-inch wingspan to predators to all the way space-based imaging. Mm-hmm. 
and there the field of view and the pixel resolution requirements and everything it, it spans all over the space so so I'm, I'm switching gears a little bit and uh, previous was sort of uh, you you can say an anecdotal or event-based uh, vision of the history now we will we'll go into a little bit of a technical uh, angle of looking at history. So I think for, first one of the questions, and this, this sort of also gets into where we should be headed anyway. So imaging sensors, uh, or you can say sensors in general, why do we do this? What it is and why do we do this? So uh, questions we asked, and this is something, that these are very generic questions, and we constantly are asking these questions. Who, what, where, when, that's the sensing front-end part. And how and why is the analysis and exploitation part. So uh, when you reduce it down to its essence, all we care about is answering these questions. Uh, when, it, when it comes to using imaging as spatial sensors, not imaging to take photographs of your vacation where you can view this and recapture the experience. That's, that's a different world. And in some sense, computational photography and computational imaging. Mm -hmm. That's what, when I say computational imaging, you're looking at imaging, you're considering that as a spatial sensor. A spatial sensor means a system that is designed to answer these questions. Identifying various constituent elements in the scene specifying their location and their time. So, now, within this sense, uh, within this particular realm, you have two different sensory modalities. One you can say proximate sen sensor and the other is standoff sensor. So, proximate sensor, I want to know what is the texture of a surface. I put my hand as a sensor, move around. I say, is it rough or smooth? Is it uniform? What is the granularity? In other words, your sensors are spatially co-located uh, with the object that you are trying to measure. And the other thing is your sensors are separated by some distance. Now that standoff is a malleable soft concept. Uh, say for example, take the, the uh, magnetic hard drive, disk head. So, for a magnetic storage, the heads will be floating, I don't know, a few microns or a few uh, hundred nanometers above the disk surface. So if when you go to the optical disks and the optical head is floating two millimeters away from the surface, that's a huge distance. So that's a standoff for writing and reading. Whereas a standoff, uh, if you're talking about a Hubble Space Telescope, that's looking at the farthest galaxy in the universe, that standoff distance is however many billion light years away. But the point is, where you are making the measurements is not co-located with what it is that you are trying to measure. If you are doing standoff sensing, it has to involve wave propagation. No ifs, ands, and buts. And that's almost contained in the definition of wave motion. Wave is defined as a phenomenon that carries energy and information 
over distance without material transport. So that's the difference between a sound wave and wind. Wind will carry leaves with it. Sound wave will not carry leaves with it. Both involve movement of air molecules. But sound wave is capable of carrying energy and information over distance without a bulk transport. And then, of course, uh, you have the electromagnetic waves, then you have seismic waves, all kinds of waves, but nonetheless, wave motion, it is at the heart of any kind of a standoff sensing activity. So, when you have wave and you have standoff distance, you have wave propagation that involves diffraction, and that diffraction essentially scrambles the spatial organization of signals. So in other words, uh, this particular scene, there is ambient light that is reflected off your faces, individual spots on your face. And so right there, if I put a photodetector and move it around your face, it can measure the reflectance of the surface. If I move that photodetector over here, and if I put a photographic film or a CCD without any optical element, I'm just going to get basically a uniform exposure. All that spatial organization is lost. So, we effectively, when we are doing the standoff sensing, we have two parts. One, you can call it the source encoding. That is the phenomenology by which the objects in the scene impress information about themselves on the electromagnetic radiation, whether it's by emission or reflection or absorption or scattering. And the full domain of the electromagnetic wavefront, the amplitude and wavelength and polarization and everything is used to encode that information. And the other is channel encoding or channel distortion that is the result of the propagation of that wave between the objects and your entrance pupil or where you are entering. So these, these are the two things. So we, we, we are, when we say about processing, we are talking about removing the channel distortion or, or undoing the effects of diffraction. So what are the components of an imaging sensor? And I'm sure you, you have done this in this class. So there is the front end element that operates on the electromagnetic wavefront or the optical directly. <coughs> then there is the transduction that takes that electromagnetic energy and transduces it into some other form. In photographic film, it was chemical. In uh, CCDs and CMOS, it's the electrical energy. And then there is the storage, display, processing, and exploitation. <coughs> so these are the three stages. And I'm using the code. This color is not that strong, but blue means biology and pink means technology. So in the pre-prehistoric period, all these elements were biological. The front-end element was the optics of your eye, the transduction was your retina, and the subsequent processing going into B1 all the way up to the prefrontal cortex, where some recognition or some processing exploitation took place. It was probably before language, so we don't know what the pre-prehistoric uh, primates and what terms they thought. So then we come forward to prehistoric and historic period down to cave paintings. So there, the storage and display technology in quotes 
was introduced. Everything else is still biological, but capturing and storing that experience. And beyond this prehistoric and historic period, you can imagine the technology getting more sophisticated, but the principle did not change. And it, it stayed that way through the prehistoric and historic period. Now, as we go forward to pre-industrial period, and as I said, the optical elements were introduced. So the optics of the eye or the front-end element of the entire sensing chain was augmented by technology. And uh, what were the consequences? You could see farther and you could see smaller. Industrial period was basically the invention of photography. So in addition to the eye, uh, the transduction element and the storage and display element was now technological. What are the consequences? We could expand into invisible spectrum. Now, one has to remember, without photographic film, X-rays would never have been invented. Because Rengen figured out that there was something going on because he had this film that was stored in dark drawer and it still, something happened, it exposed. So, so, invisible spectrum. Then second thing is time sequence recording, allowing the analysis of very fast or very slow events, mm -hmm. time-lapse photography and other things. So, detailed study of motion that went well beyond the human time frame. However, everything was still non-real time. You still required chemical processing and processing and exploitation was still by humans. So, as we move forward, to the modern era, 20th century, it really is a revolution in uh, imaging sensors. Where the processing and exploitation is still primarily by humans, but that slowly is moving into a completely automated image exploitation system. And I just thought this is an interesting example. I don't think the PV Soccer League still has a gold line camera or something to decide whether somebody was offside or whatever, but it's really a matter of time. <laughs> uh, and why is it a dramatic bre uh, break from the past? Real-time acquisition, no chemical processing, real-time processing and scalable manufacturing, at least as far as sensors are concerned, and now with the wafer-level camera and new designs for front-end optical elements, that scalable manufacturing is also moving towards optics. And... Uh, let me see. This, I don't know, did you did you show this quote in the class? No, I haven't. Okay. Yes. This, uh, as I was working on some of uh, this presentation, I found this very interesting article from Nathan Murvold. Uh, people know about Nathan Murvold and what is, I think he was employee number 15 or something at Microsoft. And from what I understand, his primary contribution to the thing at that time to have a standalone company that is solely for the purpose of developing system software and making money on that. So his contribution was the business model for Microsoft. And he's currently either the most famous or most reviled person in Silicon Valley for having started a company, Intellectual Ventures. And again, he's trying to do a business model that a company can exist solely for the purpose of inventing things never commercializing, never productizing, but essentially filing the patents and sitting on them 
and either licensing it or suing people who they think violated the patent. So it's a very interesting business model. So obviously he knows something about these things, but he made this comment about cameras will also change form. They are film cameras without the film, basically like the early automobiles were horseless carriages. So his point is that uh, camera stores of the future will surprise us just as much. And I was uh, making this comment to somebody. I said, oh, what the hell is he talking about? The automobiles are still the same as in 1910. 100 years later, nothing has changed. It still is internal combustion engine and transmission and wheels. Well, yes and no. So now we, we thought that we'll take this analogy a little bit forward and say, okay, so horse-drawn carriage, horseless carriage to the family station wagon. Up to here, you can say, really, you know, it's more sophisticated, but nothing has changed. But then you say, what else has happened? And, you know, automotives, tractors, backboards, a tank to that car called Tango that can that's allowed to split the lane. And this, of course, you recognize that as Stanley, autonomous vehicle. So if we say that film cameras, filmless cameras, I, I, I really love this picture. Both of them are Canon cameras, identical. This is, <laughs> instead of film backplane, that's a CCD backplane. So... Where is it going in the future? What are the future directions? And at least our projection is where it's going in the future is specialization and autonomy. That the same concept, of course, there is some energy source and there is some mechanism to convert that energy into mechanical motion. So in that sense, nothing has changed. But if you look at this and this and this and this, each one is designed for a different purpose. Each one is specialized for that particular purpose. So similarly, cameras, right now a camera is a camera that takes picture, whether it's the Hubble or whether it is your cell phone camera or anything or the pill camera. The structure and function so far hasn't changed at all. And that is where we feel a dramatic break uh, coming in the future. Because of the flexibility of the technology, because of very specialized applications, very specialized constraints for things. So why shouldn't there be, uh, you can say, just like there are ASICs, application-specific integrated circuits, why shouldn't there be application-specific imaging systems, ACES? So that and autonomy, that an imaging sensor that decides on its own without any manual intervention where to focus on how to interrogate the scene. And this is sort of uh, reworking the biological inspiration. It's, uh, the cameras are really replacing the human eye with trying to form a similar kind of representation. Whereas if you go to the biological world, it's a vast array of uh, different types of imaging sensors. It's probably not even proper to call them imaging sensors. They are more like spatial sensors. The most primitive form, an earthworm with a light-sensitive skin, that simply is able to distinguish there is more light on this side versus that side and can steer itself accordingly. And then variety of techniques for uh, the insects and other creatures 
and uh, these uh, their spectral response, the processing, the functionality just exquisitely evolved for the specific evolutionary needs of the animal for the survival. And uh, I, I I don't know if I really I think I I, w- I would like to uh, sort of uh, the optics is now getting there, molding glass, plastic lenses, diamond turning, microfabrication, vapor scale assembly. So the grind and polish technique for making optical elements it really is now uh, relegated to very high quality, specialized. And processing embedded in the cameras, that's the first step right now. Red eye removal, face detection, smile detection. And this is, of course, illumination. illumination. Right now, we're still using this dumb flash that just goes. So, spatio-temporal coding of illumination in order to enhance your ability to extract information from the scene. Different spectral regimes for exploiting that information. And this is this is some picture gallery of uh, new optics. That's the Kodak micro lens array, folded optics, diamond turn optics, and free-form, multi-scale, conformal optics. What, you, what did you use it for the last one? I'm sorry? What is the, what's the use of the last one? I don't know if this is any use. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's cool. Yeah, I, I, this, this is just a technology that's, right. that's there. That you, you saw it, uh, in uh, Charlotte. Uh, mm-hmm. they, have, they have this machine right, right. that... Uh, they, they can do this. Like an HOA optics. Uh, I think it's a six degrees of freedom machine mm-hmm. for turning and right. then you can do that on a conformal surface. And uh, these, uh, these, I think... Uh, so just going back to your yeah. previous comment. Yeah. Uh, so, okay, everything is moving in a direction where things are more programmable, more specialized... Uh, but in the basic laws of physics are not going to change. No. We are still going to convert photons into electrons yes. and, and so on. Absolutely. And so are there some, uh, you know, if, if you want to build uh, a, an aircraft, you're going to use, you know, Bernoulli principle. If you're going to, if you're going to build a vehicle, it's, you're going to use Newton's third law. It's, it's just going to use those laws of physics. Yeah. Is there something fundamental about imaging that we should be challenging? It, it, or should, should we continue to use the same laws of physics? I mean, what, what laws of physics? I think it, it may not be like challenging laws of physics, but what are the laws of physics that we can bend? Mm-hmm. Or uh, there are various qualifiers. So like, you know, the, one of the things, yeah, resolution is limited by the wavelength of light. Mm-hmm. Yes, as long as you are in the far field regime, as long as you are in the linear regime, mm-hmm. You violate one of these and you can do whatever you want. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, if you are proximity, near field scanning optical microscope, you can get as small as you want. But if you have nonlinear, these uh, microscopes, fluorescence microscopes, mm-hmm. you can get uh, 50 nanometer resolution with right. visible light. So uh, that, that sort of is some ways in which you can really carefully look at what we consider to be fundamental limit uh, imposed by physics and say, well, what is the fine print? Mm-hmm. And can we violate the? So that that would be very interesting to look at. Yeah, but I mean, can we start using our own bodies as as optics, or can we start using uh, you know biological principles to 
uh, solve the, the 5W and 1H problems. Uh, I mean, in film, the film world, we actually use the chemistry yeah. to solve a lot of the problems. And yeah. now somehow we have forgotten chemistry and we are more into the, back to the physics now. Yeah, I think, uh, I, I don't know. Like well, one of the things I wondered, if, can we have a three-dimensional detector? Mm-hmm. Uh, a volume detector. Right. And uh, if, we, if we can store it, uh, what will it record? How will we read it out? How will we process it? Mm-hmm. Uh, some people had talked about uh, directly recording the coherence function instead of just measuring the intensity. Right. So there could be... And you, you, can, you can imagine that now, uh, of course, you know, you can wave the wand, say, nano, and everything goes away or everything is different. But to some extent, that may be true, that if you are, if you are able to control the material at deep, deep sub-wavelength level, you can do some pretty ridiculous things. So that, that, that's the direction that we haven't really explored. And another, another interesting thing is that uh, if, you, if you have the ability to manipulate matter and control it at deep sub-wavelength level, then it's really incumbent on you to abandon your other cherished notions about, oh, a spherical lens forming a well-focused image on a focal plane. Why, why are you sticking to that paradigm? So if you really fully want to exploit the ability to manipulate the electromagnetic wavefront in very novel ways using very novel materials, you should also start thinking about what are we going to measure and how are we going to measure it. So, I, I don't know if I answered your question. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an open question. I, it's I don't an think open question, a, yeah. Yeah, I don't think there's a, a no. clear direction. But, I mean, the, the chart that you showed earlier of, you know, uh, different stages where biological, I mean, not biological, but human yeah. involved, and they have become more and more technological. Mm-hmm. Now, everything that was blue has become pink. Yeah. So, what's next? <laughs> I think maybe just what kind of technologies. I mean, you, 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 can, you can think of some of the things like, uh, can we think of self-assembled imaging sensors mm-hmm. that are not lithographically driven or okay. that are not mechanically assembled? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I don't know what else. Yeah. It's, it's, like the, it's like the discussion on uh, similarity. Right? It's always easier to say it's coming tomorrow. Yeah. But when you go back, it seems like you know, a lot of stuff has to happen before... Uh, before uh, uh, before we reach that yeah. point of uh, I think and, and, and many of the turning points in technology are turning points only in retrospect. Yes. <laughs> so you say, ah, that was the day, world changed. <laughs> you didn't realize that time. That was the, I mean, like uh, the 40-year anniversary of the internet, and there was a story mm-hmm. about what was the first message sent. First message was log in. And oh. after LOG, the computers crashed and they had to reboot. And so they asked the person from UCLA, so what did you do after you sent a message? Oh, I went, had a burger and went to sleep. <laughs> because I didn't, didn't know that that revolutionized or something. It's only in retrospect. That. And uh, these, are, these are some interesting examples. Uh, just, just to say application-specific imaging. And this is uh, one example about, from a surgeon in uh, Naval Medical Center. They are using the 3CCD camera on a laparoscopic tower. And basically his point is that when you are doing surgery, it's really important to know which is the artery and which is the vein. You treat, <laughs> you treat it very differently. 
and uh, you sort of uh, say, I mean, you know, hey, color coding wires, unfortunately, in, in the body, it's not that uh, straightforward. So, uh, taking these three uh, colors and then doing the processing and using many of the things that you saw here, that you, you can really, a uh, very distinct spectrum for the hemoglobin and oxygenated hemoglobin. And so by doing the processing, you create that map and uh, you project it back. You show it. The veins are <laughs> colored blue and the arteries are colored red. And so uh, now here in this particular case, the surgeon looks at the monitor and says, ah, okay, this is the one that I should be careful about or whatever. But then uh, some of the things, I, I don't know, the, how many of you have seen this thing called vein viewer? Have you seen the problem? Okay. I, I don't know if there is a wireless connection is uh, good enough. We'll, we'll see. It might it might be working. Yeah. Yeah, it's good for you, have, you have seen that? So, you know, it's... Uh, <laughs> and and if, if you look at the technology, it is just absolutely stupid technology. <laughs> It's 780 nanometer uh, light illumination that you do that and that penetrates the skin and is absorbed by your blood. And so you can see the veins deep inside and the, the beauty about this is a camera is up there and so is a DLP projector. And the processor basically scales and aligns the images so that it is projected back exactly aligned like that. And But the use is phenomenal. Yeah, it's one of the best forms of augmented reality. Exactly. So I'll just show it in my augmented reality uh, presentations. Yeah, and I think the rest of the thing maybe. Uh, uh, yeah, this is. Uh, I was talking to Ramesh. Uh, this is uh, Doug Hart's company, Bronte's uh, technology mm -hmm. <laughs> for the 3D. I think you we saw it. We saw it in the you, class. You saw so. that, and you know, this is uh, lava chair side oral scan. So I think that, that there was a video. Did Did you see that video of the doctor manipulating and the? Uh, did you show the video? I don't remember. Pleasure? Did he? Uh, I forget. I don't know. I think it's it's not that important. You you know you know what it is about. Yeah, but it's amazing how how simple it is. Yeah, and I think you know this this is one of the things that maybe the. And the refocus imaging, of course, mm -hmm. you don't need to right. know, know anything more about it. But in some ways, when you talk about application-specific cameras, the key is understanding the nature of the problem and finding the simplest solution to that specific problem. And one of the examples, you saw that vein viewer. All of you know the pulse oximeter that is clipped to your finger. It's relatively new, I think maybe 20, 25 years old technology. If again, if you look at the technology, it's absolutely dirt simple technology. Mm -hmm. Two different LEDs looking at the differential absorption through your finger to measure the oxygenation level of the blood. And before, they had to draw the blood and send it for analysis, and by the time it came back, maybe bad things happened. But this one is now, you, you saw in all the TV shows uh, anywhere, that the first thing they do is clip this on your <laughs> finger. And... I don't know how, how much it costs. It but still costs $1,000. I don't know why. Because somebody is making a lot of money. That's yeah. why. <laughs> <laughs> they have a patent. <laughs> yeah. uh, but but uh, then some of the research uh, projects that I was involved in monitoring, 
they talk about can, can you do a, a spatial map of oxygenation levels using these multispectral cameras and then processing. And the doctors got really excited for applications like uh, burn assessment, uh, whether it's a first or second or third degree burn, the treatment differs dramatically. And instead of relying on the doctor's visual assessment of what degree burn it is, if you can take a camera that can do that uh, blood oxygenation map, mm -hmm. or uh, if you can map the retina, and a lot of the diabetic retinopathy and other diseases, there, the precursors are in if uh, what, what is the oxygenation level of the blood vessels in the mm -hmm. retina. So these kind of things, just like the distinction between uh, arteries and veins or the vein viewer and all that, it's not, you don't need to invent new nanotechnologies or something. You need to understand in depth what the problem is right. and what the human factors is. Again, this thing, vein viewer, the cool thing is not just that IR LED, but you can imagine everything else the same except that image being shown on TV and it will nowhere be as dramatic if the doctor has to manipulate the needle here while looking at the monitor. Mm -hmm. It's the human factor. It's right there. So that that's really where... Uh, okay. So this is the last slide. So uh, just a little bit science fantasy, not just fiction. A personal imaging assistant, something that just like you carry your pen every day or your wallet or credit card or your cell phone. The personal imaging assistant, what all will it do? Uh, Healthcare, checking for sunburns or if you get scraped, you know, hey, is it getting infected, this wound? Uh, you have an attachment, you check the ear infection of your children or whatever. Look at your tongue, are you getting upset stomach? Wardrobe matching, of course, color and size, especially. <laughs> yeah. What kind of makeup will go with this and other things? Hygiene, cleanliness of surrounding, presence of bacteria, water, food safety. Uh, quality of what this the last one it's really sort of getting a little bit science fictiony but maybe not given that sixth sense thing <laughs> so you're wearing these glasses of this personal imaging assistant with a headphone and somebody walks hey Ramesh how are you, you know, somebody whispers in your ear that's Ramesh Raskar <laughs> so that it's like the politicians who have these assistants at their elbow who whisper in their uh, ears to who is the person walking in and Discerning mood—that that's again very science fiction. Can you can the image tell you that this guy is very skeptical? He's not buying anything. Of course, taking pictures and how it's basically exploit the electromagnetic domain to the hilt, combine the processing right there, and have an adaptive uh, one one analogy that people make. Right now, it's a sensor with a total one directional flow of information from the sensor to the processor. To the How about going back? I, I heard somewhere about human visual pathways from the retina to the lateral geniculate nucleus to E1 and all the inferior temporal cortex and all that. Everybody analyzes that feed forward and what kind of features are extracted. And I heard that from V1 to LGM, there is a huge amount of feedback connection. What's the role of that? And that's, I don't think the neuroscientists know yet. But uh, that, that kind of a thing, an imaging sensor that analyzes the scene says, okay, 
Now next I should look in this direction, in this spectral domain, this place or something. And in few of these adaptive steps can learn a hell of a lot about what is out there. So last thing, unobtrusive or most cohort form factor and it's literally part of getting dressed. It's like carry your wallet, your cell phone, you carry your imaging assistant that can do all of these things for you. But what form factor? Is it in the clothing or is it... Is it That's your, interesting. Is it your it could be integrated or? in your eyeglasses. I, I wear mm-hmm. kind of a product. Or uh, I, I was uh, uh, this morning at Mitre, I was looking at some of these uh, glossy magazines for army and all. And I noticed that all the soldiers in Iraq and Afghanistan, their helmet had something there. And I asked, oh, what is this? They said, of course, it's a video tank. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's part of a standard military equipment. So. I don't know how unobtrusive you can make it. Is it in the clothing? Is it something that you clip on your shirt or is it here? Hey, you are in media labs. You figure out. (laughs) (laughs) So, well, that's it. Thank you. Any questions for Ravi? And uh, we can use... We can make your slides available? Yeah. Okay. Uh, can I ask a question? Yes. Uh, so there is this uh, problem in biometrics when you want to capture, uh, like when you want to recognize a person at a distance and uh, maybe and they, they are pushing programs of iris at a distance or face recognition at a distance mm-hmm. in maritime environment and things like that. And there are two problems in this. One is atmosphere uh, between the subject and you, and the other is subject is, uh, he does not want you to recognize him. He's uncooperative. Uh, what would be your ideas in terms of uh, how our image sensors should go to capture that problem? Because if we have a really good image, then we can run our recognition algorithms, and then we can focus more on recognition aspect rather than dealing with issues like blur or, you know, uh, atmospheric issues and stuff like that. <laughs> I, that, that. That's a very broad question. It's also the touches upon some very sensitive topics, as you can imagine. All I can say is that uh, that that program announcement is public, right? Yeah. That, that is. Uh, the Navy's not the only one interested. I'm sorry. <laughs> We're talking about the Navy and the right? Oh, okay. There are all kinds yeah, of agencies interested. Yeah, the, the, there is a program announcement called Best Biometric Exploitation. Biometric Exploitation. Science and Technology. Out of this agency called IARPA, Intelligence Advanced Research Project Agency. It's a multidimensional problem, and there are all kinds of ideas that are proposed, hopefully. Within a few months, the contracts will be awarded, and we'll find out what... But I think uh, somewhat going beyond that, I think really in imaging senses, and this, this is a debate that we are constantly having, is it necessary to form an image? And that, that's, and if you don't form an image, if you just map directly into features, number one, can you do that? Number two, should you do that? Is it advantageous in some form or fashion? That's, uh, it applies to biometrics as well, like... Uh, right now for iris recognition. There is the dogman algorithm. And that, so that is geared upon 
you sampling the iris at a certain resolution in a certain way, but if you tie the front-end acquisition to the exploitation, could you get into a more robust, simpler system? That's, that's an interesting question, but uh, it's a little difficult for uh, sponsors to launch in that direction because too much risk, and if something changes on one side, the whole the thing may collapse. But that's an interesting problem. Yeah, I think the, the point I would make is that it's, as long as, it's, as you continue to rely on collecting a high-quality image, do this, I think that doing it at a distance is going to pose a challenge. And the dogma algorithm is a perfect example. You start out with an image that's several hundred kilobytes and you end up with a template that's a couple hundred bytes. Right. So obviously you don't need all that data that you collected in that high resolution image to do iris recognition. So why do you need to start with that image in the first place? And if you could develop a compressed representation, if you could uh, if you could sense that compressed representation directly, would it lead to a simpler system? Would it lead to a simpler and more robust system? That last question is a very tricky to answer. And uh, the three of us and Rob, when he was with us, four of us have gone over this over and over and we still haven't come to a conclusion. So, sure. Right. So hopefully, uh, as you already saw, a lot of the lot yeah. of the project plans are also about not yeah not about standard cameras and they're exploiting specialization and autonomy and you know, trying to change a lot of the rules here. So and as a matter of fact, many of the uh, projects we, we sort of looked at each other and said, hmm, you know, should we talking to these people? <laughs> <laughs> I'm yeah. come back and visit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. You're welcome. You're, you're welcome to sign up yeah. as a mentor for the class. So we have we have several mentors for the class, and you're welcome to sign up for that. So excellent. So next week we have uh, the midterm exam. Uh, it's uh, open book, open laptop, open internet, open everything. So don't study for it. Uh, and it will be mostly about drawing diagrams and explaining things and the problems that will make you think. Um, and uh, after, immediately after that we'll be studying uh, animal eyes, uh, uh, which is this one third. 13th of uh, November.